This is the Oasis Church Podcast. We're located in Athens, Ohio, and we use this podcast feed to primarily post the messages from our Sunday morning church gatherings. If you enjoy this message or if you'd like to know more about Oasis Church, please reach out to us at oasisathens at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope that you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Well, good morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4 today, and uh, we're moving on from chapter 3. It's not that we didn't want to finish chapter 3. Chapter 3 ends with the genealogy of Jesus um, from his birth um, by Mary, um, tracing all the way back um, from, from generation to generation, all the way back to Adam. But what we're about to read right now in these first few verses of uh, chapter 4 in Luke's gospel is this account of Satan coming to Jesus, our Lord Jesus, and continually for 40 days tempt him with all kinds of temptation that you and I are constantly battling against. Um, Some of us successfully battling against that temptation and others maybe unsuccessfully, or sometimes you battle successfully and sometimes maybe unsuccessfully. But as we look into the temptation of Jesus today, which is, is a really incredible passage of scripture, it's a really incredible moment that we get insight to. What we again find ourselves seeing is a God who in every single way identifies with us when we are tempted. He's been there. So in the moment of your temptation, whatever it is that you struggle with, God know this, that God has been there. He's been right where you are. He has struggled through the same thing. He he has had that same temptation come to him. He's not a God who stands back and is immune from temptation and trial and suffering and pain. He is a God who enters it willingly to identify with us and then also ultimately to deliver us from it. So now let's jump in. Actually, you know, before we jump into the text, I just want to clarify one thing theologically here. Otherwise, you know, when you go out and you're, you may be talking about Jesus with someone, um, the, the issue of him being fully human and fully God, fully divine comes up. And then maybe if someone knows their Bible well enough, they might bring up this verse from, from, the, from the book of James that gets thrown into the mix here after we study what we're going to study today. And then you might scratch your head and wonder, well, wait a minute, how does that be, how is that consistent with what we just learned today in Luke chapter four? Here's what James says. In James chapter one, verse three, he says this, God cannot be tempted with evil and he tempts no one. So, so, so I just told you that we're about to study a passage where Jesus, who is God, is tempted by Satan for 40 days, continuously just tempted with stuff. And then James says that God can't be tempted. So that, of course, begs the question, okay, God can't be tempted. Jesus is God. Jesus is tempted. Oh, no. (laughs) My head just exploded. What does this mean, right? What does this mean? So if you feel that, uh, sometimes those kind of wrenches get thrown into our our thinking, right? Into 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 our theology. Well, 
this goes back to the issue that we've actually talked about the, for the last couple of weeks. I mentioned it two weeks ago and then went in a little bit more depth into it last week regarding the incarnation, God becoming man and being fully man. And, and Paul explains it a little bit in Philippians chapter 2. So first of all, let's, let's, let's begin with this, okay? The Bible says two things. We're about to see this. The Bible says two things. Jesus was tempted... And in Hebrews, it says, he never sinned. Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus was tempted in every possible way, yet he never sinned. So our high priest, who is Jesus, has been tempted, just like we are, without any sin. That's what the Bible says. So how is it then that Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, can be tempted if God, if he is fully God, and God cannot be tempted? Well, we got to remember that something really unique happened a one-time occurrence in the history of the human of the human race happened at the incarnation at Bethlehem when Jesus was born this, this is why Christmas is so fantastic when Jesus when God comes in the flesh as the second member of the Trinity the Son of God coming to us to our to this earth that he created as the Lord Jesus Christ as he humbled himself and he took upon flesh, that creator entered into creation. Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, that he did this humbly to serve us, to identify with us, to live as we live, to be our Savior and our Redeemer. God becomes man to connect with men and women, to, to connect us to God, to connect us directly with Him, ultimately. And so Jesus, during His life on this earth, was fully God, fully man. And he still is to this day. That is the characteristic of the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God, fully man. And it's not that man became God. It's not that man becomes a God, that, 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 but, but that it was that God became man. He chose to become man. Jesus was God. And while he lived here on the earth during the 30-some the years that he walked on this earth that he created, and he, he lived as God, and he lived as a man, and people saw him as a man and heard him as a man, but he was God while here as well, and he served others out of that divinity, right? I mean, he, he used some of his divinity to serve others, but he never cheated and used it to serve his own benefit, right? I mean, when he performs miracles... It's always to feed other people, not himself. It's always to heal other people, not himself. To alleviate the suffering of other people, not his own suffering. And so he, he had all of that hunger and suffering and, and pain as a human, but he used his divine attributes to serve and benefit and bless others through those miracles. But he himself lived as we live and as we must live, humbly, humanly. He suffered like we suffer he grew tired just as we grew tired and had to rest. He had to sleep. He grew hungry just as we grow hungry. And he felt pain just as we feel pain. And we'll see today that he endured temptation. Temptation to sin just as we endure temptation. So looking back on Luke chapter 4, the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 of Hebrews, verses 17 and 18, comments that he, meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for our sins, for the sins of all the people. 
For because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to then help those who are being tempted. Because Jesus went through what we're about to read today, he is now able to help you when you go through the same thing. That's why this is so amazing today. So God became a man. He humbly lived. He didn't cheat and use his divinity to make his life easier. He was tempted, just as we're tempted. He identifies with us. And we're tempted. We can look to Jesus. We can speak with Jesus. We can follow the example of Jesus and how to deal with that temptation. Because God is not one who is immune and removed from all of this. He's one who's involved and he's sympathetic. He empathizes. He's been there. He understands. And so with all of that as our, as our background, let's now go to Luke chapter 4 and let's read. Verse 1. In Jesus... So here we are. It's all about him. Who's it all about? Jesus. Turn your eyes on Jesus. That's all it's about. It's all about him. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. So the Jordan River where he was baptized, gets out of the river, out of that lake, and just goes. And he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So if you remember from last week, if you didn't connect with us last week, we studied chapter 3 in Luke. And in that chapter, we find that Jesus was baptized. And we talked about why he may have been baptized and all that. And we went through the, you know, the theology and the philosophy of that. And you can go back and listen to that again, uh, or for the first time, if you haven't yet listened to that. But Jesus comes out of the water. Immediately coming out of the water, God the Father speaks from heaven. So you got God the Father, God the Son being baptized. God the Father speaks from heaven. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. So Jesus out of the water, the whole, you know, the whole Godhead is present right here in that moment, in that moment. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a phenomenal time. This is Jesus' public inauguration, his declaration that his ministry is now beginning. And he goes right from there, right into the battlefield. I mean, he just go, comes right out of the water, right to the front lines. He might still be soaking wet from his baptism, but he's off to battle. He's no coward. He's, go, he's ready to go to work. Let's get to work. And he goes out into the wilderness by himself for 40 days, and he fasts. Fasting has become a big trend these days, intermittent fasting and different kinds of fasting. So a lot of people understand fasting. Well, Jesus goes out and he fasts. He fasts from any food, doesn't eat anything. And out, while he's out there, and he's probably his body's growing weaker from this fast, he does battle with Satan. And this is extremely important, what we're about to study today. So Jesus is about to pick up the ball where Adam dropped it. Adam, the, the, the first one we read about, the first man that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. At the end of Luke 3, I mentioned this, Luke lists the genealogy of Jesus. And he goes all the way back to Adam, the very first man. And if you think about all the parallels that are here in this, in, in, in this instance that's about to happen right now, Adam enjoyed a paradise, a garden that God had given him, a beautiful garden, not a wilderness. Adam got to feast on whatever he wanted. He wasn't famished from a 40-day fast. Adam sinned and, and rebelled against God. When Satan came to him and he tempted him, Adam yielded to that temptation. And as a result, he was cast out of the garden and into the wilderness. And he was our first father. He was our first ancestor. And he's our representative. He's the one, you know, he is the one that has given us the sin that we originate with. 
We all, as his children, as sons and daughters, we bear that sin nature that's given to us from him. And we're born into this proverbial spiritual wilderness separated from God because of sin. And so here's Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry, picking up the ball in the same place where Adam dropped it in the wilderness. And he goes into that battlefield where Adam, our first father, failed. And he comes, and in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 says that as the last Adam, Jesus comes as the last Adam to win a victory where Adam suffered a horrendous defeat. And so he begins his ministry by showing us that he can identify and that he is able to do what none of us are able to do. He's able to accomplish what you can't accomplish on your own. He's able to help you to accomplish that. And he's able to do that because he's going to go in and be tempted for 40 days into this wilderness. That's what it says. He's in the 40 in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And the Luke is going to Luke, the writer of this gospel is going to record for us three of the temptations that were that were present in this in this 40-day time. There were more. There were far more than this. This was a continual, as we know, ongoing temptation for 40 days and 40 nights. It's like the devil just kept hammering him with temptation. And as we investigate these three temptations that Luke lists for us here in this chapter today, what you're going to see is that Luke covers it. He covers all of the temptations by giving us an example of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and bodeful you know, boastful pride of life. That that's kind of the the three main characters. First John chapter two says that there are categories um, of all of our temptation, of all the sins that we commit, that we are tempted to, to, to commit. There there are three main categories for it, basically. And Jesus is going to be tempted like we're tempted in all ways for pleasure and for power and for fame and glory and security and comfort and convenience and health and wealth and ease of life and all of those things. And Luke records them, he summarizes them with the, with three. And so let's just go ahead and begin. The first temptation begins at the end of verse two here in chapter four. It says, for 40 days, being this is verse two, 40 days being tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The, so here, so again, fully human, right? And the devil came to him. The, the devil said to him, "If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread." And Jesus answered him, "It is written, man shall not live by bread alone." Fairly famous passage or, or verse that you may know or recognize. Well, let me ask you this: Could Jesus have turned these stones to bread? Yes or no? Shake your head, yes or no. Yeah, of course he could. We know that. I mean, we see in John chapter 2 that he turns water into wine. One of the very the first miracle he did, he goes to the wedding of a friend of the family, and they ran out of wine, and Jesus turns you know wine, he makes wine out of water. So if he can make wine out of water, he can certainly make bread out of stones. I mean, Jesus is hungry here, and so this is this is one that's kind of hitting right, you know, right, right in his belly, right? So Satan comes to him and he says, Hey, make bread. If you're hungry, make bread. Well, let me ask you this. Is it a sin to eat bread? No, of course not. But the, well, then what's the temptation here? Yeah, right. You might wonder, well, what is it, what exactly is the temptation here? Well, part of the temptation, I think, is whether or not Jesus is going to obey Satan. That's part of it. I mean, Satan's the one who's commanding him to do this, not God. 
And then secondly, Satan is calling on him to meet a physical urge, a physical, a physical desire. And, and, and you need to know that. Many of our temptations that we have are, are, are around bodily appetites and pleasures that are not necessarily evil in and of themselves. I mean, food, drink, rest, physical intimacy are all wonderful gifts from God. God gives those to us to enjoy, if appropriated, in a godly purpose, in a godly manner. But those same things can also lead us to much sin like gluttony and drunkenness and addiction and perversion, worshiping comfort and pleasure as though they were gods that we pursue those with all, at all costs. It's, it's, like, you know, it's like fire, right? If we had a fireplace here in the living room, you know, that would be wonderful to have a fire. You know, it's warm, it provides comfort, it's like a peace and rest, and it, it provides heat, it provides all kinds of need. You take that same fire and move it three feet out of the fireplace and put it right in your living room floor, you got a whole different set of problems. And that's what it's like with all of these things, these good gifts that God has given us to enjoy. The context and the appropriate context for them means everything. And so the real temptation here I think, and I, I think, I think the real, what's really happening here, the, the, the heart of this temptation is actually an attack on Jesus's identity. I mean, listen to what Satan says, how he begins. He says, if you're the son of God, so Satan will say that line twice here in Luke chapter four, the first 13 verses. Now, I want you to remember last week when, 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 in Luke chapter 3, when Jesus was baptized, he comes up out of the water, and God the Father says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Satan, now, just hours later, or maybe days later, I don't know what day in the days of his days in the wilderness he said this, but Satan now says, just on the heels of that, Are you really the Son of God? Show me. Prove it. You see, identity is a huge thing. Identity determines biography. What I mean is your life comes out of your identity. Who you think you are will determine the decisions you make and how you live your life. It happens. Do you think you're a victim? You'll live as a victim. Do you think that you can do no wrong, you'll live a religious life. Do you think that you're weak? You'll live in weakness. You'll live in timidity and fear and, and no confidence. Do you think that you're damaged goods beyond repair? If so, then you'll never enjoy the, the totality of redemption that God would have for you. Identity is everything for us as people, as humans. Identity determines biography. Who you are is determined, you know, determines how you know, determines how you live, right? Knowing who you are determines how you live. It's one of the reasons why people say when you're trying to develop better habits, you want to you want to kick old bad habits. It's you, know, you look at it not as stopping some kind of thing that you know some inanimate thing, but look at it as who you are, right? Like for example, if you're a smoker, if you smoke some people have a really hard time quitting smoking because they're looking at it as a thing to stop. I got to stop doing that. 
people, you know, you know uh, psychologists will tell you that if you really want to have an, if, 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 you know, to, to, uh, if it's, you want to be stronger and being able to stop that poor habit, then look at it as an identity issue. Instead of, instead of looking at it as something to stop, you look at yourself as a non-smoker. And when you start relating to yourself as a non-smoker, I am a non-smoker. It's about who I am. It's an identity issue. It actually makes it easier to kick that habit because who you are determines how you live. So identity here. See, Christ, you know, what we need to understand is in Christ... We have a new identity, but Satan constantly comes and questions that. Just like he did with Jesus, right? He came to Jesus, are you sure, if you really are the son of God, he does that to you. In Christ, you're a new creation, but Satan loves to come to you and say, are you really forgiven? I mean, don't you remember all those horrible things that you did? Are you really sure that God forgives all of those things? I mean, God loves you, huh? Okay. Are you sure that he loves you? I mean, you're suffering right now. You're in pain right now. You sure doesn't look like God loves you. It doesn't seem like, you know, anyone's trying to serve you and help you right now. It's, you know, are you sure that God is your father? Are you sure that you're a Christian? Are you really sure that you're saved and loved and redeemed and cleansed and forgiven? Are you really sure that's who you are? All those big promises that the Bible makes, if that was true, wouldn't your life look a little different than it does right now? Are you really sure? That's what Satan does. He does it to you because he did it to Jesus. If you're really the son of God, and he's constantly going to have you question your identity as a child of God, as a son of God, as a daughter of God, just as he questioned the identity of the very son of God, Jesus. And I want you to really know that in Christ, you get a new identity. And out of that identity, you live a new biography. You determine the biography of your life based on who you see that you are. That's why the Bible says, the Bible tells us, look, let us live up to what we have already attained. What have we attained? Well, here's what we've attained. God loves us. God saves us. God forgives us. He gives us his righteousness. He adopts us as his children. He cares for us. He prepares a place for us. So just let us live up to what we've already attained. But if you forget that, if you forget your identity, then you destroy your biography and you destroy your life. Because you start pursuing other things based on what you think about yourself. See, Satan's a liar. He's a liar. John 8 says he's a liar. He's the father of lies. Lying is his native language. He's been lying since the beginning. And if he can lie to you like he lied to Jesus, and if he can get you to question your identity, he can destroy your life. He's a liar. I mean, look... Something doesn't need to be true to be devastating. It just simply needs to be believed. And sometimes Satan starts with a question, like he did with Eve in the garden, like he did with Jesus, like he does with you. Does God really say that if you eat of that fruit, you'll be like him? Do you really think you're a child of God? Are you really the son of God, Jesus? So how how does Jesus respond? This is really important. Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy. (laughs) He's going to quote Deuteronomy three times here, most likely from memory, as he grew up learning the scriptures. And here it's Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And he says, It is written, 
So in essence, what Jesus is saying when he says it is written, he's saying the Bible says this. So when Satan comes at you, it is really helpful for you to know your Bible. In fact, it is the most helpful thing to you to know your Bible. If you don't, if you don't know the Bible, like if you don't have it here and it's able to come to here and it's able to come out of your mouth, then you have no spiritual authority. What that means is you have no spiritual authority over sin. This is how you gain authority over sin. Your spiritual authority is Jesus' spiritual authority that's been delegated to you. And that comes through the scriptures. It comes to us through the scriptures. When the Ephesians, uh, when the book of Ephesians and Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it is made for battle. That's what it's talking about. What kind of what, what kind of battle do we mean? Well, the battle that the Bible is always talking about in the New Testament is sin. That's what the battle is. It's not some physical battle. I mean, that's how the Jews mistook what Jesus came to do. They thought he was actually going to fight a real war and he would be their new king here on earth. That's, that's not what the battle is. The battle is against sin. And that's, what, that's when the Bible talks about this, that when, you know, as, as Satan comes to you and the battle of temptation, rage, temptation rages in your life, Scripture is your only hope. And to know it and to know it well and to have it come to your mind from where you've stored it in your heart, and so the question is, for you, for us, for me, if all of human history, I mean, think, put yourself in Jesus' place right now. If all of human history hinged on your capacity after 40 days in the wilderness without food, your ability to quote from Deuteronomy, how would it go? <laughs> so some of you right now are going, doot what? Doot who? Doot, doot, where's that? Doot, deuterot, deutero, Deuteronomy. You see, I think some of us just right now, we need to make a commitment to just starting today, just read, read the Bible, just read it, read through the whole thing. Just, and, and when I say that, I mean, just literally just read it to start with. Yes, studying it is good. Yes, praying over it is good. Yes, memorizing and meditating on the scripture is good. But don't let all of that overwhelm and intimidate you. I think sometimes we get intimidated by people who really study it well. And so we don't do it. Look, just start somewhere. Just start by reading your Bible. Read the Bible. Don't, don't fret over what you can't understand. Don't worry about that. You're not going to understand. I don't understand a lot. You're not going to understand a lot. So just don't fret over it. Just read it. Don't try to apply every verse to something that's happening in your life today. Don't try to do that. You can't do that. Right? Just read. Just read. That's all you got to do. For the average person, if you took 20 minutes a day, you could read the whole Bible in a year. That's all it takes, even if you read slow. And I read slow. I confess that. So Jesus, we're told in Luke uh, a couple weeks ago, he grew in wisdom and stature, right? In his teen years in Luke chapter 2, he grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. He was baptized. He begins his ministry. He goes out into the wilderness to the front line of the battle. Satan comes to him. And, and what Jesus doesn't say in that moment is, hmm, hang on a second. I got some homework to do. I'll get back to you on that, Satan. I, I, I forgot to read Deuteronomy. I spent my middle school years playing video games, my high school years on TikTok, and my college years finding myself. So I, I, I'm not ready for this right now. He's ready to go. He's ready to go. 
So, so listen, some, some of you, I mean, maybe some of you who are listening to this message right now, maybe you're younger. You're in a most important season of your life. You might be wasting it with other stuff. Wasting it with things that just aren't necessary. The things that aren't bad in and of themselves. I'm not saying that. But they're just not, they're not best. That's, that's the thing. What is best? And when, when temptation comes and when Satan comes to you, what, what, what you're going to need, all of those things aren't going to help you. They're not going to help you in the battle because those things have not been preparing you for the war. Jesus is ready. Here he is, 30 years old, and he is ready. He's ready. So when Jesus quotes the scripture back to him, he quotes Deuteronomy back to him, man does not live on bread alone. Does Satan leave him, right? Satan leaves him after that. After that first victory? No, he doesn't. See, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, right? That if you just say no, then he'll leave you alone. That's, you know, if you just stand your ground in temptation, then, then it, things will get easier. That's not really what happened. I mean, what happens is, and look, this happens in Christian circles. Some really well-meaning but wrong Bible teachers will come along and they'll say, quote a verse, tell him to go, and he must flee. But he doesn't. He doesn't always go. He doesn't leave Jesus so he's not going to leave you either. It's not like, it's not like Satan hears Jesus like, oh, I heard Deuteronomy. I better go now. He just keeps coming. He, he, just, he just reloads. He comes back at him. So Luke 4, verses 5 and 8. Let's read these. Let's just read them all, all here, all these verses. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I don't know how that happened. It's a miracle, but, but it would be amazing to see how it happened. And, and he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. Remember, the, 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 you know, Satan is the, is, the, is the ruler of this world, this, this, you know, the, world worldly, the worldly kingdom. He says, I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him again with Scripture, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So here Satan comes to Jesus, and he preaches prosperity. And it's amazing, because Satan is still able to preach prosperity to this day. <laughs> and he does it in, in Christian, I use that word loosely, in, in Christian outlets. He does it from behind pulpits. He does it in books that maybe some of you have purchased and read. He does it in Bible colleges and seminaries and in television and radio. Satan, Satan comes to Jesus and he says, hey, I thought the father loved you. I thought the father was a king. I thought he owned a cattle on a thousand hills. You should be eating good food, not starving. You should be living in a big house, not out here in the barren wilderness, homeless. You should have a bunch of servants not tending to yourself. You're, you're, the, you're the son of a king, right? So what, 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 what's Satan doing here? He's a prosperity preacher. That's what he's doing. Now look, I could go in all the ways that the word of faith, prosperity gospel has been detrimental and devastating to many in the church. But I'd guess that just about anyone who connects with Oasis knows that I already, you know, you guys already know that and I'd just be preaching to the choir. So I'll just say this. Because I think hearing it in this way will be more relevant to us than me just ranting about prosperity gospel preachers, who I really think are on the, on the, on the downfall. Many people today 
the reason why they get sucked into prosperity gospel preaching is because many people think they have a financial problem. But we don't have a financial problem. We have a worship problem. So many of us have bought this lie that I deserve good things. I deserve good clothes. I deserve a new car. I deserve a big house. I deserve nice things. Well, and then somewhere along the way, people started mixing the Bible in with this line of idolatrous thinking and saying things like, hmm, the Bible says you're the child of a king. And the Bible says your father owns a cattle, the cattle on a thousand hills. And that's, that's your inheritance, he says. And he, and he wants to give that to you now, now. So the translation of that is, just say the word, have faith, and it's already done. And that's what that kind of doctrine has become. And all that is, all that is, is Satan handing the same temptation out today that he used on Jesus then. But now he's working through preachers, preachers, saying, you know what? Out in the world, I can use marketing and advertising firms and everybody gets sucked into this temptation for, for stuff pretty easily. But in the church, people are a little more suspicious about being materialistic. And so, hey, pastor with the big church, you know, the big building and, and the nice suit, could you please carry out this temptation for me? And the pastors do. So Satan comes to Jesus preaching prosperity. He looks at Jesus and he says, hey, you know what? I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world that I'm in charge of. You want to rule over a billion people in China? You want to rule over a billion in India? You want to rule over the Roman Empire here right now? You want to be president of the United States of America? You want? How big do you want your house to be? How big do you want your 32nd house to be? How, how, what kind of car do you want? What kind of, what, what, what kind of 32nd car do you want? How big do you want your throne? I'll give you a big throne. How high do you want your servants to carry you so that everyone will see you when you walk around and, and worship you? You see, we have all been lied to. We've all been lied to about all of this stuff. Now, I know, look, it's, it, there's, 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 there's back and forth on this. Some might come and say, well, look, are you saying, Chris, it's bad to have a good job and make good money and live in a nice house and have a decent car? No, it's not. But here's the thing. If Satan is the one that's introduced that desire to you through clever marketing or through prosperity preaching and you bite, you bite, you take that bait. I mean, it's like fish on a hook. It's like you see the bait and you, you bite it and then you're hooked. And when Satan hooks you, you're dead. He'll reel you up to your death. That's, see, that's, that's what temptation is. That's a good way to think about it. It's like bait on a hook. Some of you, some of you have seen the bait and it looked really enticing. But you don't realize it's bait to death. That the result of taking that bait is death. And maybe right now you're tasting it. And the answer for you is not more bait. <laughs> the answer is to get the hook out of your mouth. The answer is not to put more bait on the hook, hoping that if you have more bait, you'll eventually won't feel the hook. The answer is to repent right now and get off the hook. That's the answer. You see, the Bible is not just about what happened back then. The Bible is about 
what always happens now. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says this, that Satan will not outwit us today if we know his schemes. And look, I really think that's why Luke gives us this incredible story right now, this incredible account, so that we will know his tactics, we'll know his schemes, and we'll at least have a little bit of preparation. And so I, I said the real issue is a worship issue. And that's all sin is. We talk about it all the time. Sin is a worship issue. It's always a worship issue. Satan says to Jesus, hey, you want glory? You want fame? You want power? Look, Jesus, we can do all of that without the cross. You don't need to be abandoned and betrayed and homeless and flogged and arrested and murdered and crucified and buried. We can get you all that. We can get you a crown without a cross. We can get you a kingdom without having to go to a tomb. We can do all that, Jesus. Just one thing. You'll need to worship me. You see, I'm, I'm guessing that, that most of us today would say, I'm not a Satan worshiper. I don't worship Satan. If I were to ask you, how many of you worship Satan? We, I, we probably, none of us, I, I doubt if any of us would say that. But let's think about another definition of sin, okay? Every time, so think about it like this. Every time we sin, we're choosing to worship Satan. That's what it is. You see, worship is not just what we do here on Sundays, you know, here or wherever we gather on Sundays, whenever we gather for corporate meetings. It's what we do all the time. It's what we do throughout every moment of our lives. You know, for example, what you look at is an act of worship. What you say is an act of worship. What you do all the time is an act of worship. So every, like every time, every time you take your, your debit card out or your credit card out of your wallet and your purse and you go and you transact business and commerce, that's an act of worship. Everything we do, it's an act for, to, or against the glory of God. It, it is. It's either for or against one or the other. What you consume, you know, that is either to or against the glory of God. It's all a worship act. Our entire life is a worship act. That's, that's how we were created. That's how we're built. And so Satan comes to Jesus and he says, hey, hold me in a position of prominence and authority. And he's not even asking Jesus to become an atheist, really. He's not asking him to, to deny the Father. He's just saying, hey, take the Father down a little bit from his position of supremacy, from his position of, of glory, of ultimate glory, and don't do everything that honors him. Do some things that I want you to do as well. Just have divided loyalties and interests. If you'll do that, Jesus, we'll, we'll be good. And that's, see, that's what gets most of us, doesn't it? I mean, if we're honest, right? We, we love Jesus, we also love stuff. We love Jesus and food. We love Jesus and gossip. We love Jesus and laziness. We love Jesus and comfort. We love Jesus and politics. We love Jesus and just you, you fill in the blank. Or maybe it's this one. Maybe it's, hey, Chris, I don't identify with any of that stuff that you just said because I love Jesus and religion. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm proud and self-righteous and I look down on other people who don't believe in the same doctrines that I believe in or, or people who struggle with those other things that you just said. 
Satan comes to Jesus and he says, hey, it's, it's, a, it's a worship issue. I'll make you comfortable. I'll make you successful and powerful. I'll fill your stomach. I'll give you all the pleasures of your, that your mind can conceive of. And then Jesus responds again by quoting again from Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6, verse 13. And Jesus answered to Satan, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So after that, does Satan leave him now? Nope. He reloads again. <laughs> and he comes right back. Verses 9 through 12. And he took him to Jerusalem. So now we're going to get religious. Going to Jerusalem is getting religious. That's where everything happened for the Jews. And he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, which was on a hill. So this would have been a magnificent sight to see. And he said to him, if, now here it comes again, the identity issue. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Satan's saying, look, throw yourself down from here. And it is written, it is written in the scripture that he'll command his angels to save you so that you don't even touch the stone, the rocks. And then Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Satan comes to Jesus and he says this, Hey, I noticed that you like the scriptures, Jesus. I studied them myself. Do you know that? Satan, Satan knows the scriptures. Satan still has professors at Bible colleges and seminaries and Christian universities and regular universities and publishing houses. And, and not all, not all, don't, don't mistake that. But, but there, are, there are false teachers. They do abound. And, and Satan comes to Jesus and he basically says, yeah, you know what, Jesus, you quote Deuteronomy a few times. I've also been doing some reading and my reading's been in the Psalms. By the way, do you know what Satan and his demons are doing right now? Right now. I mean, just as we're having this study in Scripture right now. You know what they're doing? They're studying the Bible as well. They're having a little study group trying to figure out how they can destroy us. They're sitting around with a Bible open trying to figure out, okay, those people in those local churches in Southeast Ohio, I don't think they really understand the Bible very much. They don't spend much time in it. Then, then maybe we can confuse them with it and lead them astray with it, get them focused on other things perhaps that are going on in the world around them rather than on the gospel. I mean, right now, that's what Satan and demons are trying to figure out how to use this very book that we hold so dear to absolutely destroy us. And we need to know this. We need to be aware of this. Do you know your Bible? Don't just rely on Sundays to be your Bible teacher. Read it every day. You see, Satan here, he quotes from Psalms. He quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And, and, and you need to know that Satan will quote. He knows the Bible. Do you know that? Do you know that if you're sloppy with the Scripture, he will absolutely destroy you? I mean, so many people in our world are in this kind of season right now of confusion about what the Bible really says, where the Scriptures have been pushed, you know, used to push other agendas in our world right now. And good people, good people's eyes and their hearts and their minds have been lured in by that bait, and they're hooked. And they're focused on the wrong things. And the saddest thing of all is that they become hooked by a verse in their Bible. 
The bait that was used to destroy them was a twisting of, or a misuse of, or a taken out of context verse from this very book of Scripture. And I want us all to remember this. Every time the hook is baited, sometimes it's baited with religion. And sometimes religion comes out along the way and says, hey, you want to bait the hook? Great. We'll take these verses out of context that Satan gave us and we'll give them to you so that you can feel really biblical and righteous all the while you're worshiping Satan. And Satan sits back and he laughs. And I think Satan sits back right now and he looks at the United States and the church and many of the people who are calling themselves Christians in the United States and he's laughing because that's what he's done. He's twisted it to help them meet some kind of twisted agenda. He comes to Jesus. They're up on the pinnacle of the temple. And what he tells them is basically this. He says, hey, Jesus, in Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, it says that God will protect those who are his faithful servants. So test him and see. Test him right now. Throw yourself off this this rooftop and see. And so Jesus goes right back to Deuteronomy, chapter 6. And he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So what he says is basically this. Hey, Satan, you've, got, you've quoted a verse. Hey, good for you. Good for you. But you've seriously misapplied that verse. You see, God's point in Psalm 91 is not test him and make him prove to you who he is. The point is as you faithfully serve him, he will lovingly help you in your time of need. I really feel like I should say this, I, you know, especially... For our college student population, because I know many of you, you know, who are who've connected with Oasis, you're college students, which means you're transient. You're not going to be here forever. You're with us for a few years, and then you'll you'll probably go, um, and you'll you'll go out and live somewhere, get a job somewhere else in the world, and you'll find a church. You'll be looking for a church to go to. And and when I say things like this, please, I don't want to sound like some fear-based preacher or someone who thinks that I'm the only Bible teacher or someone who has it all figured out and everyone else is wrong, because that is not true at all. But if and when God would move you away from, from fellowshipping with Oasis, please, please pick a church that's biblical. Please connect with people who are biblical. Not just a quoting of verses, but but the actual teaching of truth that is consistent with the whole of Scripture, the rest of Scripture that points to Jesus as the hero, as God, as Savior, as Lord, and as Christ. Connect with people like that. Lots of people will quote verses, but they do so with Satan's influence because he's really crafty and he's scheming and he's sly. And he even, he even knows how to use the Bible to destroy you. And I always want you to be aware of that. So now, ultimately, here we are in verse 13, the last verse. Satan does ultimately leave Jesus. Verse 13, when the devil had ended every temptation, every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So here it was, 40 days of constant ongoing, habitual, painful, reoccurring, real battle. I mean, real conflict, temptation. The hook has been baited over and over and over again with every temptation. 
and commenting on this very scene, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 says that he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. I mean, why did, it, why did it have to take 40 days? Because it took a long time for him to be tempted in every single way. And I really, you got to really know this, that he does this. And, and I'll, just, I'll just close with this emphasis, okay? When you're tempted... Please do not, please do not believe the demonic lie that Jesus doesn't understand. Jesus can't relate. That Jesus has never been there. He's never had to deal with what I, my, my circumstances are unusual or, or they're unusual to him. They're not the same. I live in 2021. It's different. I can't talk to God about this. God doesn't understand. I'm totally embarrassed by this. He wouldn't understand. I'm totally ashamed of myself. He just wouldn't get it. Look, God gets it. He gives us, he gives us this knowledge from Luke 4 so that we will know that he gets it. And that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He's been there. He's felt that. He has seen that. He's resisted that. He's there with you right in that moment to help you and to serve you. And you need him. You need him. When it says that he was enduring every temptation, believe that. Whatever your temptation is, Jesus faced it. Jesus faced some, on some level that temptation. And eventually Satan left him. Forever? Nope. The last thing we read, until an opportune time. And that's some of you right now. You might be in between temptations, right? Maybe some of you right now, the battle is raging heavily. For some, maybe there was a battle, but now there's, there's a little bit of peace, but there's another one coming. And you don't know when... I mean, you're in the middle. Even when it seems like you're in a season of peace and things are going pretty good, it's always time to prepare for the next battle. Always prepare. Don't ever retire from reading your Bible or connecting with the church and praying and repenting of your sin and, and you know, inviting accountable relationships into your life. Now is always the time to get ready for the next battle that we know is going to come. I love what Abraham Lincoln is quoted as saying that if you gave me six hours to chop down a tree, I would spend four of those hours sharpening my axe. And that's that is so wise. Because look, the battle isn't constant. But when the battle comes, you better be ready. And the best way to get ready is to sharpen yourself with the sword of the Spirit, with God's Word. And look, I know just like any, any sermon, just like any teaching right now, if you're hearing inside your mind or maybe throughout this teaching today you've heard inside your mind this is really good but it, it, you know you don't really need to hear this this would be a really good message for so and so to hear but thankfully you don't need this you got to understand that would be your enemy whispering in your ear <laughs> trying to trying to take you away from the the newness of life that and the joy that Jesus offers to you today, right now. Because it is for you, it's for me, it's for all of us. That voice that comes, he's a liar. Satan is a liar. But the truth will set you free. Free. <laughs> Freedom. That's, 
That's something that we hear a lot about today, right? Don't take away my freedoms. You know what true freedom is? True freedom is those, true freedom comes to those who are devoted exclusively to God. That's what it is. Those who say no, who are able to say no to temptation, who refuse to try to get the bait off of the hook and are just content with whatever God would give them as their life course today. That's what freedom really is. Look, Jesus had nothing and he was free. Jesus lived in an oppressive nation under tyrannical rule and he was free. He was free in a way that we'll never know as long as the hook remains in our mouths. Jesus saw the bait, but he saw it for what it was, all the emptiness that it was, and he never, ever once took the hook. And for that, I'm thankful. Why don't we pray? Father God, I, I want to pray for all of my friends and family out here who have heard this word today. And I pray that we would know that we all have a common enemy. We're all fighting the same enemy, and he is Satan. And so I pray right now against that enemy and his effects in our lives. And I pray, God, that, that, that no one would walk away from this teaching today just disbelieving in the existence of Satan and being cavalier about the weight of temptation and what happens when, when we are being tempted as well that kind of battle that we face. And I know, God, that you want to you want to help people. You want to serve people that you created. You want to set people free from the falsehood, the, the so overwhelming falsehood that is out there. You want to bring newness of life to people. You want to open people's blind eyes. You want to take hooks out of open mouths that have been deceived and duped by the bait. You want to give new appetites for things that are not evil, but that are good. And so, Holy Spirit, I would just request that right now that you would open the eyes and the hearts and the minds of everyone who is listening and worshiping right now, that they might see Jesus and run to Jesus, whose arms are open wide, whose salvation is real whose forgiveness is total and complete, whose cleansing is thorough, whose grace is sufficient for all time, for us, every day. His righteousness is freely given. And his eternity is amazing to consider. And so, Lord Jesus, right now, we, we worship you together. And we pray all of these things, even as we sing, in your name. Amen.